Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 11 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is Part 2 of a two-part story. Please listen to Season 2, Episode 10 for more details on this case. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Jennifer and June Gibbons were twins. They would shut themselves away in their bedroom, not coming down for meals, and even when they did, they would barely acknowledge their family. All this changed in the summer of 1981, but their actions would lead them to the gates of Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital and a cocktail of antipsychotic medication. A few weeks after the Kennedy boys had left the UK, the twins were still pining for them, and likely down to boredom, they started to steal pushbikes from their neighbours. One night during July 16, 1981, after being spotted by the owner of one of the bikes, the twins were accosted and the police were informed. The twins sat in silence, refusing to answer any questions while they waited for the police to arrive. When an officer finally showed up, he recognised June and Jennifer and took them home. Despite their brush with the law, the twins seemed unfazed and would often go cherry-knocking, ringing on residents' doorbells before running away. They would hang around the local area, trying to get the attention of young men, sometimes being ignored, sometimes being noticed. The latter would inevitably turn into some form of fumbled sexual encounter. The girls decided to write to Wayne Kennedy. However, the letter was returned undelivered, as the address was unknown. Frustrated and bored, June and Jennifer decided to apply for a job, 
but they didn't have much luck. With little to do, the twins would often turn to drink while looking for other avenues of interest in their inebriated state. During September 1981, they broke into Portfield Special School, an adult training centre, and stole a few items including some Play-Doh, chalk and a handful of educational books. Over the next few weeks, they went on to vandalise their old school, steal from cars and slash their tyres. Looking to up the ante, they called the emergency services from a nearby phone box. Without revealing their names, they confessed to the operator they had broken into a school before telling them to fuck off and slamming the phone down. Exhilarated, over the course of the next few days, they smashed a window of a greengrocer's with some empty glass milk bottles, threw bricks through a dress shop window and called the fire brigade falsely notifying them of a fire at a local Chinese restaurant. A similar pattern played out night after night. They informed the ambulance service that someone had broken their back, directing them to an address where they had recently purchased a second-hand bike. After a spate of breaking and entering, the twins were intent on causing even more destruction in their local community. They discussed how they would make a bomb and burn a building to the ground. By the start of October 1981, they were regularly contacting the police. On one occasion, Jennifer called the emergency services from a phone box located in a bus station. However, her eagerness to describe in detail their escapades would see the twins get caught. Jennifer lowered her voice, attempting to sound male, and stated her name was Michael Jones. She claimed responsibility for breaking into a school. The conversation went on so long the police were able to track the call and found the girls giggling inside the phone box. Once arrested, their fingerprints were taken and the twins were interviewed. Frustratingly for the officer, little information was gleaned from the twins other than a few stifled laughs. They were both charged with misuse of a 999 call in an attempt to deter them from any future criminal activity. Towards the end of October, still intent on burning down a building, they broke into a local tennis court, entering via an adjoining temporary kitchen. Once there, they coated the kitchen in petrol and set it alight. Marvelling in the destruction they caused, the following evening they broke into a local tractor store located on Snowdrop Lane. Once inside, they stole some office equipment and two bomber jackets. They poured the contents of a small can of petrol they had bought with them over a desk, which they immediately set alight. The flames quickly took hold. They poured more petrol throughout the neighbouring rooms and again threw a lit match into the liquid and watched as its contents were lost to the blaze. As the fire engulfed the building, a passerby noticed the flames so informed the emergency services straight away. The girls fled, remarkably unscathed, clutching a carrier bag full of items they had stolen. In awe of the flames, the twins joined the crowds of onlookers as firefighters risked their lives to tackle the blaze. As the fire subsided, the twins returned home. Unbeknownst to them, a neighbour had seen the girls making their way to the tractor shed and reported them to the police. The following day, two detectives arrived at their home on Fursey Park and attempted to question the girls, but to no one's surprise, they wouldn't speak and the police left frustrated. A week later, the front page of the local newspaper 
said that £100,000 worth of damage had been caused and the police were still pursuing the arsonist. Believing they were untouchable, the girls continued their rampage, breaking into buildings and often stealing the odd souvenir from their escapades. On November 8th, the girls were out during the evening, as they often would be, and noticed a policeman walking past the front of Pembroke Technical College. This inspired the girls to make their way behind the college. They threw a brick through a window and climbed in. It was almost as if they wanted to get caught. Constable Jones heard the shattering of glass and reported the incident to his colleagues at the station. He noted that the two girls made their way inside the property and his colleague, Detective Sergeant Charlton, arrived with a number of other officers who all peered through the broken window. They watched June and Jennifer coat desks and chairs with a glue-like substance. Realising they were about to set the room alight, the officers rushed into the building, grabbing the twins before they had a chance to set the fire. June and Jennifer were taken to the police station, and in an unusual but ultimately effective method of interrogation, Detective Sergeant Charlton used a pen and paper to elicit the required response. He asked the girls to write down their answers and then left the room. Detective Charlton managed to obtain their names, ages, their address and details of the break-in. However, the girls did not disclose any information regarding their other crimes. While the twins were in custody, the detective went to visit their shocked parents. Aubrey and Gloria couldn't believe that the girls were responsible. They knew their daughters were troubled, but they weren't arsonists. Officers arrived to search the girls' room for evidence and a number of black bin bags were collected full of souvenirs the twins had amassed from their crimes. Aubrey and Gloria watched in amazement as the officers were rifling through the twins' belongings. Their parents had barely entered that room, let alone searched through its contents. By November 10th, 1981, the girls remained in police custody and would not be released. June and Jennifer were held in Puckle Church Remand Centre, now known as Ashfield Prison, located in Gloucestershire and 140 miles away from their home in Haverford West. There was some concern that the girls would go on to commit further crimes so should be held in custody for their own safety. When they first arrived at the Remand Centre, internal examinations were undertaken, but neither June or Jennifer followed any instructions so would have to be dressed and showered by the prison staff. When the guard entered their cell, both girls stood imperceptibly still. The guard left only to return a few hours later to ensure they were ready for bed, but neither June or Jennifer had moved a muscle. They were rigid and barely blinked. They were politely told they could not sleep standing up, so the sisters were placed on their respective bunks. The guard tucked them in and put a gentle finger over each eyelid in a vain attempt to relax the twins, and at least then they might get some sleep. The following day, life behind bars began and routine set in. The twins slowly adapted to their new life in prison. They were up before 8am to clean their cells, followed by breakfast, exercise, study, lunch, more lessons, dinner and then finally back into their cells for bed at 9pm. They tended to stick to this routine with the only exception being the meals. They would take it in turn to starve while the other ate. In each other's presence, it almost seemed that if one stood in the sunlight, 
the other had to live in the shadows. During Christmas of 1981, it was felt the twins should be split up in an attempt to improve their behaviour. This produced just as much upset, as they were now unaware of what the other was doing. Both June and Jennifer were distraught and barely responded. They again only became responsive when they could talk to one another. Two months passed and the twins had been receiving calls from solicitor Michael Jones from Eaton Evans and Morris, who was dealing with their case. Face-to-face meetings had initially been arranged, but this made the twins uncomfortable. Although he was only working on behalf of June, Michael Jones tended to converse with both sisters as it was near impossible to coordinate them on the days they were allowed to be together. These telephone meetings would leave prison staff in shock as the girls spent most of their days in a zombie-like state, but would become animated when they could speak to each other during the periods the solicitor would call. Prison staff became so enthralled with June and Jennifer, they would observe them in secret. When they were together, they would speak in a language that only the twins could understand. When they were apart, staff would observe them carrying out near-identical tasks. If June was reading, Jennifer was reading. If June was sleeping, Jennifer was sleeping. How one twin knew what the other was doing was a mystery. One seemed to be a mirror image of the other. As they hadn't observed any violent outbursts, staff tried at first to integrate the sisters into the general population, but gave up within a few weeks as it was clear they had no interest in socialising so were put back in the same cell. A date for the trial was not forthcoming and the twins pined for a family they never communicated with. Despite being unable to function without each other, they slowly began to resent being trapped in the same space. During April 1982, the tension between the two girls reached boiling point after June turned off a radio the two were listening to. The struggle between the twins began and Jennifer placed her hand around June's throat and attempted to strangle her sister. A patrol officer heard the commotion and rushed to the cell. She prized the girls apart, however June managed to break free and scratch her sister's face before Jennifer was escorted to another cell. The twins spent a few days apart and a watchful eye was kept on the sisters as this was the first time they had shown any form of outward aggression. After some consideration from officials, they were reunited a few days later. Another event during Easter of 1982 that caused quite a stir at the Remand Centre was June's book Pepsi Cola Addict had finally been published and a copy had been sent there for June's attention. While she wasn't happy with the artwork, it was something that she had created. Staff were in disbelief. How was it possible that this girl who barely communicated with anyone but her twin sister could write a book? June and Jennifer had frequent visits from their family, which although produced little physical reaction from the sisters at the time, it meant a lot to the twins. One entry from Jennifer's diary read, My parents actually came to visit me. It means more to me than anything. As weeks turned to months and the court case looming, their solicitors were aware it was unlikely the girls would be found innocent. The prosecution had substantial evidence against them, including June and Jennifer's diaries, so the defence deferred the trial to buy some time to see if the girls could be treated at a psychiatric hospital rather than a prison. A psychiatrist was employed to assess the twins. He also arranged a visit to see their family to possibly gain some insight into their condition. 
Psychiatrist Dr. William Spry believed the twins to be mentally impaired and required some form of treatment. He put forward the case that the sisters were psychopaths and should be treated in a hospital, not a prison. The twin solicitors agreed and utilised this diagnosis in the defence. If the solicitors were to put forward this argument, they needed to find a hospital that had a secure unit where the girls could be treated. With the help of Dr. Spry, they found a consultant at Broadmoor Hospital, Dr. John Hamilton. While there wasn't a unit ready for the girls at Broadmoor, they did have a specialist communication therapist who might be able to help the twins. It was agreed by the solicitors that one of the doctors would appear as an expert at the trial. However, with all of the back and forth on how they could position the defence's arguments, this led to a number of hearing postponements. After a few weeks, they finally received notification that a trial date was set for May 14, 1982, and there was a place at Broadmoor for both June and Jennifer. Relieved and thankful their time at Puckle Church Remand Centre was finally over, they started to plan what they would wear and began exercising. They wanted to make the best impression possible on the judge and jury. Sadly, a day before the trial was due to start, on May 13th, they were called to see the prison chief's office, only to be told that due to a missing psychiatrist report, the trial would have to be delayed. Outraged and broken-hearted, the twins discussed their next steps in their cell. They decided to put up a barricade against the cell door. They propped the door shut with a mattress, so when an orderly tried to enter the room, the door wouldn't open. While they believed this was a victory against the system, prison staff did not take too kindly to have to fight their way into the cell. Over the six months June and Jennifer had been at the remand centre, staff had treated them with respect and kindness, despite their reluctance to help themselves. This would all change once officials prized the door open. Both girls were dragged out, stripped, searched and thrown into separate empty cells. They were placed on suicide watch, so every 15 minutes an officer would glance through a spy hole in the cell door. After three days, they were finally allowed back into their room and were visited by their solicitor, who informed them the date of the trial was set for May 27th. They were told to plead guilty to the charges, as this would save them having to go through a full trial, and the judge would most likely send them to a hospital, not a prison. The twins envisioned Broadmoor Hospital as a hotel containing a swimming pool, a gym, shops and a disco every night. Someone would help them with their speech and a whole team of people would look after them. They felt the day of the trial wouldn't come soon enough as in this new paradise not only would they be free from this prison but they might also be free from one another. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On May 27th, 1982, the twins were taken to Swansea Crown Court where their parents sat patiently awaiting the trial. At 2pm, June and Jennifer entered the courtroom and pled guilty to 16 joint charges of burglary, theft and arson. The confirmation of their plea was barely audible. The court recounted the education facilities they had vandalised and broken into, namely Haverford West County Secondary School, Portfield School and Pembrokeshire Technical College, along with listing the items they had stolen. Their diaries were read aloud which made the trivial items they had stolen, such as Play-Doh, chalk and some books, seem far more grandiose than they actually were. The details of the fire were also laid bare, and the twins' diaries were again read aloud as evidence. The girls were upset their parents had to hear their unfiltered thoughts and misdeeds. It was then Dr Hamilton's turn to take the stand. The defence barrister asked him whether the girls had some form of mental illness which might require treatment at a secure facility and Dr Hamilton, a consultant at Broadmoor, replied, I believe so. Asked how much time would be required, Dr Hamilton stated, It is very difficult to forecast this until we have the opportunity for a prolonged assessment. One would certainly envisage it would be for a number of years. Certainly not shorter than that. Dr. Spry and I came to the same conclusion that detention under a special order was the most appropriate method for the court to consider. 
the doctor confirmed arrangements had been made for the twins' admission to Broadmoor Hospital within 28 days. This was news to Aubrey and Gloria. The girls' parents had not been informed that their daughters had any form of mental illness and they were most certainly not aware that their children would be placed in a hospital indefinitely. The judge inquired as to whether the hospital had facilities to look after June and Jennifer and he was reassured by Dr Hamilton. After being informed of the twins' violent outbursts, the judge agreed that the girls should be sent to Broadmoor. He summarised, I am satisfied from the evidence that has been placed before me that both defendants are suffering from a psychopathic disorder. I am further satisfied that their disorder is of such a nature as to warrant their detention immediately for medical treatment. He added, I think the order I make must be without limit of time. After the sentence, the barrister wished them well through a pane of glass and their parents said their goodbyes. On June 21, 1982, the girls were collected from Puckle Church Remand Centre and taken to Broadmoor. June had written in a diary, In a few hours I shall be driving out of Puckle Church gates for the last time. I shall be taken further to the land of hope and glory. The notorious Maximum Security Hospital is located in Berkshire and was home to the Yorkshire Ripper Peter Sutcliffe along with Ronnie Cray and Charles Bronson who now goes by the name Charles Salvador. It was founded in May 1863 under the name the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum and covers a total of 290 acres. During this period, Asylums, as they were known, were constructed away from the public as they were intended for the reception, safe custody and treatment of those individuals who had committed crimes but were thought to be mentally impaired. Unfortunately, Broadmoor wasn't the Eden the girls believed it to be. At first, patients 19091 and 19092 felt more comfortable in the vast corridors of the Victorian building, however after only a few days found the act of having to eat with other patients uncomfortable. June started to slowly become withdrawn and a paralysis started again. Although Jennifer was trying to make the best of a bad situation, as she saw her sister in a comatose position, she would mirror June and go limp, with neither sister now communicating with anyone. It wasn't until one of the staff was putting Jennifer to bed, they provoked a response. For no reason, Jennifer lashed out, scratching the attendant on the face. She was restrained and placed in a secluded area of Broadmoor. It seemed to officials the only option was to keep the twins separated for their own good. This had a devastating effect as June tried to commit suicide by strangling herself with a belt. Without her sister, Jennifer began starving herself and her weight plummeted to seven stone. Over the course of the next few months, they saw each other sparingly and staff attempted to get the girls to communicate. Eventually, it was agreed that if the girls were well behaved, they could see each other every Saturday. The medical officer in charge of the female inmates in Broadmoor, Dr. Boyce Lacuta, believed that the girls would likely need long-term care and agreed that they should remain apart. This shocked both June and Jennifer from their catatonic-like state and they both began to write countless letters to the doctor 
however he felt the twins would be best treated apart. Their family visited them throughout the summer, and although they weren't communicating with staff, they were otherwise well behaved. They attended discos and social gatherings in the hospital. The girls would often be surrounded by rapists or murderers, so even if they wanted to speak up, their conversation was somewhat limited. Despite showing no further signs of violent behaviour, there had been little progress. Within a year, Jennifer had attempted to escape, and doctors and staff were at a loss of what to do. Feeling like he had no other option, Dr. Boyce Lecuter eventually threatened the girls that he would transfer one of them back to Rampton if they continued not to cooperate. This frightened the girls enough to initially undertake attempts to communicate, but this didn't last long. They were both given highly concentrated daily injections of Depixol, an antipsychotic medication. Their eyesight was affected, they could barely concentrate, with Jennifer developing a condition that caused her to move involuntarily. While their medication was eventually adjusted to allow them to continue their hobbies, they lost interest in most things. Their privileges were eventually upgraded as their behaviour improved, however this was most likely related to the drugs that were being administered. Jennifer became the more cooperative of the two, and as the years passed the twins had little choice but to adhere to the rules of Broadmoor. During 1985, the sisters were denied the chance for a judicial review, specialists felt they had not made enough progress during the treatment. While most delinquents of such a young age would receive no more than a few years in prison, the twins remained at the hospital for over a decade due to their selective muteness. Eventually they were allowed day visits to the capital, and by 1992 it was believed their behaviour had improved so much they could be moved to less secure conditions. The initial consensus by doctors was the sisters would be split up, however eventually it was agreed that the twins would be transferred to the Caswell Clinic, a low security facility in Bridgend. By October of 92, with the twins now in their late twenties, freedom of moving to somewhere less secure was the last thing on their minds. All they could think about was death. Whenever the twins would talk, all they would discuss would be which one of them would die first so the other could move on. It seems they would only be free when they were free from each other. Extensive testing was completed and although Jennifer still showed signs of psychological disturbance, it was agreed they both could be moved. On Tuesday, March 9th, 1993, the girls packed their belongings and were ready to leave. They boarded the bus and left the gates of Broadmoor behind them. Jennifer whispered to her sister, Thank heavens we're out of here at last, as June felt Jennifer slump on her shoulder. Her eyes were wide open, but she could not be awoken from her comatose state. By the time they arrived at the Caswell Clinic in the afternoon, doctors and nurses could find no cause for this mystery illness. Jennifer couldn't walk or talk, so was lifted to her bed. A sample of her blood was taken and sent off for emergency testing. Once complete, it identified that Jennifer had seen a severe reduction in her blood platelets and an increased heart rate. She was rushed to the Princess of Wales Hospital in Bridgend at 5.30pm, but less than an hour later, Jennifer had passed away. June was distraught. Aubrey and Gloria were informed and were initially upset, however that upset turned to anger 
as they couldn't understand how this could have happened. Why was she allowed to leave Broadmoor if she was unwell, and why had they always been kept in the dark surrounding their daughter's treatment? Sadly, these were questions that no one could seem to answer. A post-mortem was completed, and it confirmed that Jennifer died after suffering a significant swelling and degeneration of her heart muscles. There are conditions that cause these symptoms, such as typhoid or tuberculosis. However, this hadn't been identified during Jennifer's stay in Broadmoor. Some doctors believed that medication might have weakened her immune system. However, both June and Jennifer took the same amount, and June suffered no ill effects. With the prospect of freedom so close, maybe Jennifer thought that the twins couldn't live a normal life in the outside world. They had become so intertwined in each other's lives, it was like living in a shadow that stopped them from ever fully blossoming. At least now June could see the sunlight. Marjorie Wallace, who had been working for the Sunday Times as an investigative journalist, found out about the twins when they had first been arrested and were awaiting trial. She visited June and Jennifer's parents and was taken into their bedroom where she discovered countless exercise books filled with their writing. Black bin bags were piled high in every piece of available furniture in the room and Marjorie was allowed to take the diaries, manuscripts, novels and poems with her. Marjorie then went to visit the twins before they were due on trial for arson, hoping to make some form of breakthrough. Marjorie began to write about them both during and after their trial. Sometime later, she was contacted by Dr. Lacuta, who had read Marjorie's articles on the twins and wished to employ her assistance to get the sisters writing again. She agreed, and on her first meeting, she spoke to the twins separately. Jennifer had been segregated as she had attacked a nurse and was now under observation. After Marjorie spoke to each of the twins, she noticed that both June and Jennifer acknowledged her presence and would grunt when discussing their writing. She managed to start a conversation with Jennifer using paper and a pencil. It was a start. She told them she had read some of the stories they had written and despite their near catatonic state, June managed to ask, Did you like my story? How should it end? Jennifer then added, What about mine? Soon Marjorie was communicating with them on a regular basis. She started to visit the twins on most weekends, and although other doctors could get little or no response from either June or Jennifer, Marjorie managed to build a rapport with them both. Even though June and Jennifer often scared nurses at the institution, being frozen in the same pose for hours at a time, Marjorie tried to help the twins communicate with the outside world. The journalist wrote countless articles on the twins and spoke to other psychiatrists and psychologists. She even contacted the Department of Health, suggesting that the sisters shouldn't be in Broadmoor. Finally, over a decade later, it was agreed the twins would be moved to the Caswell Clinic and after a year, they would be released. Although this seemed great news, when Marjorie went to visit the twins for the last time before the transfer, she was shocked at what she was told. After sitting down with them and having tea, Jennifer interrupted the conversation telling Marjorie, I'm going to die. Marjorie was stunned. She told Jennifer, what makes you think that? Jennifer replied, I just know. The twins had apparently agreed that upon their release, one would have to die in order for the other one to live. 
Marjorie had noticed Jennifer had lost a lot of weight and seemed sickly during the visit. June seemed far more healthy. Marjorie informed the doctors of what was said but was told not to worry as they would be monitoring the situation. Marjorie would later be told of Jennifer's death, however the cause still remains a mystery. In diary entries written by the twins, Jennifer wrote, We have become fatal enemies in each other's eyes. We feel the irritating deadly rays coming out of our bodies, stinging each other's skin. I say to myself, can I get rid of my own shadow? Impossible or not possible. Without my shadow would I die. Without my shadow would I gain life, be free or left to die. Without my shadow, which I identify with the face of misery, deception and murder. June wrote, Nobody suffers the way I do. Not with a sister. With a husband, yes. With a wife, yes. With a child, yes. But this sister of mine, a dark shadow robbing me of sunlight, is my one and only torment. A few days after Jennifer's passing, Marjorie went to visit June at the Caswell Clinic. Despite the grief June felt at losing the person closest to her, she also felt conflicted as she was now free from the shadow her twin sister had cast over her. She told Marjorie, Jennifer gave up her life for me. Now I have to go on and live for the both of us. June was released a year after Jennifer's passing when the Home Office granted her a conditional discharge. She was required to visit the Caswell Clinic once every two weeks for a session with a psychiatrist and to take the necessary medication. So where are we now? June and Jennifer's sister Greta spoke to the Mail Online newspaper about the effects their incarceration had on her family. They should never have been held in Broadmoor. I know they did wrong, but they didn't kill anyone. It totally ruined their lives, she said. Jenny should not have died. She was only 29 years old and should not have been discharged if she was not fit enough. She should have been in hospital, and June could have had a much better life. She has never been married or had children or fulfilled her ambition to be a writer. If it had been me... I would have sued Broadmoor. I would not have let them get away with what they did. But it was my parents' choice and they always said it would not bring Jenny back. Jennifer Gibbons is buried under a headstone written by June, which reads, We once were two, we two made one. We know more too, though life be one. Rest in peace. June visits her sister's grave every Tuesday and regularly sees her family. A book about her life with Jennifer called The Silent Twins was written by Marjorie Wallace and is widely available. June hasn't released any further books of her own. In an interview with The New Yorker, she explained, It's hard work to be a writer, isn't it? I want an easy job, an easy life. Do you know something? I could sleep for ten days if I wanted to. I like dreaming. I see my sister in my dreams talking to me. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com If you would like to support the podcast and receive ad-free content and other extras, please head to patreon.com forward slash theywalkamonguspodcast.com 
This week's podcast recommendation is Deadball. Hosts Tim and Chuck explore the personal trials and tribulations of baseball players whose lives were tragically cut short. You don't need to be a fan of the game to enjoy the show, as the podcast shines a light on the personal lives of the lucky few who've made it to the big leagues, but paid the ultimate price in the process. I help edit the podcast in my spare time, so it has a special place in my heart. If you could take a listen, we'd really appreciate it. Please stick around for a trailer at the end of this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. Tim and I am Chuck and we host a podcast called Deadball. It's available on iTunes and other podcast apps. In Deadball we look at the lives of baseball players and we look at uh, their lives that have been cut short due to some tragic event. So if you like uh, human interest stories you don't necessarily have to like baseball. It helps but it, if, if you don't. We, we talk about baseball a little bit but the story really is about the uh, is about the person. It's and a their human life. interest story in yeah. their life and the reason we find these intriguing is because when you become a professional baseball player, people think you are living the perfect life. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's not always the case. Right. Um, there's some real tragedies, and um, we would invite you to join us. Uh, again, uh, Deadball is available on iTunes and all uh, major podcast apps. And uh, check it out and leave us a review on iTunes. We would appreciate it. And join our Facebook group, uh, Deadball the Podcast. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com code program.